We introduce our speaker, our first speaker of the day. Wade Miller is a professor of geology and paleontology, retired from Brigham University. He earned his MS in geology from the University of Arizona and his PhD in paleontology from UC Berkeley. He's taught at BYU, Fullerton, uh, Junior College, Santa Ana College, and numerous other things. You can read the rest of his bio on the website. So I'm, there he is. So I'm going to turn the time over to Wade Miller. Mike off of the only place I stay today. Okay, so I've got it here. That's forward, that's backwards. Well, I'm pleased to be here. In fact, uh, I was able to speak at another fair conference several years ago uh, at a different locality. I guess it was in Murray or near Salt Lake, anyway. And as indicated here, the title of my talk is The Presence of Pre-Columbian Horses in America. And in getting into this, I had written about the time that I gave that talk, uh, working on these two books that you see here, One Science in the Book of Mormon and Creation of the Earth for Man. Originally, the uh, publisher wanted to have the part that I was going to have, Science of the Book of Mormon, as part of the creation book. But he said, no, let's make it two different books, which was done. I guess probably was a good thing. Now, in Science in the Book of Mormon, I talked a little bit about um, horses and other animals, as you can see there on the title. And then, later on, I had been asked, I don't know if we can get this to change, right? It's not changing. I'm pointing to you. There. Okay, so um, I guess you can, I probably can't read the date. I can't see how much you can see on the screen. Mine's fairly small. At any rate, um, I've been asked to write an article and was helped in this with Matt Roper, who's here, Book of Mormon Central. And in this one, we get into more of just the animals in the Book of Mormon and discuss them at greater length. And then... Um, that was, although it says fall of 2017, it didn't come out until the early part of this year when it was actually available. Now, in this question that was asked, and you can see that this is uh, addressed to fair Mormon, and I think it's a good question, and the answer is reasonable, too. <clears throat> Why don't potential pre-Columbian horse remains in the New World receive greater attention from scientists? And whoever gave the answer gave them, I think it was reasonable. <clears throat> And that is that, as toward the bottom there, it indicates that most scholars continue to believe that horses became extinct at the end of the Pleistocene period. Actually, that should be Pleistocene epoch, which is the same as the Ice Age. They're synonymous terms. But at any rate, uh, in the last several years, I've noted that there's a change. I've worked with fossils now for several decades, back to the 1960s. And uh, I've got a lot of friends that are paleontologists, a number of whom have worked on horses, and more and more beginning to realize that, yeah, certainly it's possible that they did survive beyond the Ice Age or the Pleistocene. So it's nice to see a number of them coming around. Oops, I want to, there. I want to indicate the geologic time scale here. The one on the, uh, is it your right? Yeah, is uh, kind of a cartoon, but it does give the various uh, eras and at least... Uh, some of the periods. 
The one on the left is a little bit more of a, I guess, accurate in terms of the geology. And even that is not complete. Besides the eras and the periods and the epochs that you see, and you see the Pleistocene as one of those epochs, that there's also a set of things called ages. So it's really a lot more complicated in terms of dividing time geologically, going to about the beginning and it's felt that the Earth formed about 4.6 billion years ago. <clears throat> if you look closely, you'll see that some of these time divisions are a little bit different on the two scales, and that just shows that we just don't know for sure. And so you'll see slight differences in the amount of time for these different geologic uh, segments of time. Another thing, if you'll notice, that up near the top of epics, it's in yellow there, uh, that it gives recent on the one that I told you was a little bit more accurate in terms of the scale. But if you look at the one that's more cartoon-like, it says Holocene. Those are synonymous terms. So recent is a formal term, and Holocene represent about the last 10,000 years of geologic history. Some have it maybe the last 11 or 12,000 years even. So there are, again, differences of opinion. <clears throat> And if I can get this working, I want to start out with one scripture here in Ether. This seems to be the first mention of any kind of animals in the Book of Mormon. Of course, we know that the Jaredite record in the Book of Ether goes back much further than does the Nephite record. And here it gives that they've got, um, well, things they brought over in the barge. When they were preparing those eight barges, they, they had animals that they were bringing along. None are named here, unfortunately. It indicates flocks. Now, sometimes people refer to flocks as birds, but as Matt Roper says in the Old Testament, that um, flocks generally did not regard birds. They're talking about animals, maybe sheep or goats. So we've got some animals, probably pretty big animals, that the Jaredites brought over. And I mentioned that in the article that Matt Roper and I did that came out in BYU Studies, more in detail than I'll do here. I'll be giving other information here. Anyway, so they had a lot of beasts and things they took along with them and obviously food for them. <clears throat> then if we jump about, what, 1,500 years or more into the Nephite record, then we started hearing or seeing where um, there are some specific animals mentioned. And lo and behold, it's talking about cattle, the cow and the ox, and the goat and the wild goat, but also as underlined, the ass and the horses. Now, both the ass and the horses are native to North America, and in fact, some of the same species that are found in the old world were here. They originated here. And so from here, and I'll explain this later, then they migrated into the old world. So no problem with this in the Jaredite record or the Nephite record. They were here. It's a matter of time that we need to get into, which I will later. Then uh, in Enos, we're talking, what, two generations later, a grandson of Lehi, and here we get some uh, other mention of horses as well as the goats and wild goats and cattle. So they had these, but they had many other kinds of animals as well. Uh, and then going about a few more generations in the Book of Mormon, in fact, we're going to, at this point in time when this was given, I think we're a little less than 100 B.C., so we've jumped in time again. Still they had a mention, or they mentioned having horses there. And in this case, it was, um, as you remember, Ammon, one of the sons of Mosiah, uh, was allowing himself to basically be put in servitude by Lamoni, the king of the Nephites and the Lamanites in this area. And so it talks about not only horses but chariots, so we can infer that probably those horses were used to pull chariots, although it doesn't say that quite like that. And I'm having trouble again. 
Okay, it's not turning. Okay, are you just watching me when I push, or am I actually controlling anything? <laughs> Both, okay. We'll make it through. <clears throat> okay, so a phylogeny really is the ancestral descendant relationships of a group of organisms. It can be plants or animals. In this case, we're dealing with just one family, the equids, which include the horses and their close relatives. Things like, well, I'll get to those later. What I want you to look at is, if you look down the bottom, and I don't know if you can read it or not from where you are, there's a first horse shown there called Hyracotherium. Okay, that has been thought for many years to be the ancestral horse, and they'll get into a little problem here later with that. But then from that horse, which is in North America again. And so this horse, as you can see from this kind of diagram, phylogeny, showing a bunch of different genera of horses that developed through time as they changed to meet changing environmental conditions. So we're dealing with a really a tiny little animal to begin with, no more than about a foot tall at the shoulders, who was a forest dweller living, feeding on leaves and things until we get into later forms that were feeding on grasses and, of course, had to adapt to do that. If you look toward the top, it has equus. That is the only living genus of horse now. But if you look at it, unfortunately, I can't get the pointer to work here. But notice the shaded area where it says equus kind of a, I don't know what color I'd call that, but at any rate, it's that shaded area, but it doesn't go up to the top in North America. If you look at the top, it says North America. The whole, or the major history of the horse is here in this continent, as shown here. Uh, one more point that I want to make on this is the fact that we get back into these early horses during the Eocene times, we're dealing with uh, 50, 45, 50 million years ago or so. At any rate, uh, along with students at BYU, we collected some of these primitive horses in both the Uinta Basin and also in Wyoming. And then as we go up in time, more of my study uh, had been done in some of the later horses. We get in, if you could read it there, I'm not sure. Anyhow, we get into the Miocene and Pliocene, done a lot of work over the years there with the horses, the different genera that are shown here. Then finally, we're just left with one in North America, and in fact, one throughout the world, and that's Equus. And then, uh, Notice that it just stops there. One thing not showing you, you're going to have to follow this because I can't point it out, but see where the uh, time is. That's in millions of years. And the top one that you can see there, I think, says 5 million. <clears throat> is that correct? Okay. Uh, as you get up toward the top, you can't quite see it, but the Pleistocene would be that little square on top. <clears throat> and that would go from about 1.8 or 2 million years ago to about 10,000 years ago. So what this diagram is showing is that Equus in North America just stopped being here, became extinct in America, according to studies that have been made about 10,000 years ago, the close of the Ice Age of the Pleistocene, also in South America became extinct there. But where it continued is that it got into Europe, actually Asia first, and Africa and Asia where they still exist. <clears throat> now the horse, uh, in fact, the binomial system was done by Carl Linnaeus, or Carlos Linnaeus, as he called himself even, in the 1700s. And in 1758, he named uh, Equus in this binomial system that he developed. And Equus with a species named Cabalus. And if you've ridden horses anywhere, and some of you, I'm sure, own horses or have had, uh, has been Equus cabalis. And I'd like to show in the next slide uh, a famous Equus cabalis. 
if I can get it to go. There. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know. Some of you are probably too young to remember who Roy Rogers was, but he was kind of a star of Western movies, and his horse was Trigger. And so that's Trigger that I'm riding on as a boy. My parents got to know Roy Rogers and also Dale Evans, who was a co-star in his movies, and some of them were done at Big Bear, and that's um, where I'm riding a horse here. Okay, Equus Cabalis. Then if we get into the close relatives of the horse, they too are of the genus Equus. The zebras and the, uh, the donkeys are asses, as you can see in one corner. Plain zebra that's shown there. One interesting form is the lower right-hand corner. It's called a quagga. It's kind of a type of zebra. It was a separate line, separate subspecies, some say species, uh, until the last one died out in 1875. They've tried to backbreed it, by the way, and I think they've been reasonably successful in reconstructing the quagga. Okay, again, it shows some of the living species of equus shown here, uh, again, from all the continents, of course, except Australia and Antarctica. And they've been reintroduced into Australia, or introduced to Australia. Okay, then modern equus species. This is called a cladogram, and it just shows shared characteristics of how closely related some of these things are. And if you look in the uh, bottom corner there, like the horse, the asses have been reintroduced to North America. And so the, an ass is shown there in the bottom corner. I'll show you a, a living one in the next slide, if I can get it to come on. You're going to have help. Okay, in case you're wondering, the ass is the one on the bottom. And this... <laughs> This is one of the areas that I worked out in Mexico. And, and what's interesting is that uh, even today, things like mules, and, and the mule would be an equus too, a hybrid between the, excuse me, that's a, actually that is an ass, a jackass, uh, on the bottom again. Uh, so they've been used, especially in the late 1800s, uh, and especially in North America, where a lot of the fossil collecting was done in Western North America, it was done on horseback and horses or mules pulling wagons. Okay, and so this again is in uh, Mexico where we've been working in a site near there that showed a lot of horses too, by the way, fossils. Okay, this is called a cladogram and that's why it's called cladistic horse phylogeny and this has been a more modern way of showing shared characters. I won't go into any details here, but then a problem exists. If you look down at the bottom, there's our friend Hyracotherium, regarded as the first horse or the founder of the Equid family, family Equidae. But there's been some questions, and where you see Hyracotherium in yellow, and you look off to the left, there's a group showing three genera, and they're called Paleotheres. And it's now thought that Hyracotherium, at least by a lot of researchers, is probably the ancestor to these Paleotheres, which are known in the old world. And then another form is thought to be the ancestor uh, that would continue in yellow going up to the top there, which is the genus Equus, as I indicated, Equus cabalis being the most common species. Okay, well, they had to have an ancestor. That is, uh, these early horses as well as the paleotheres, and they're called condylarts. So these are probably strange names to you. In fact, with students, we've collected in the Uinta Basin some condylarts as well. Uh, but these things gave rise not only to the horses through time, uh, but horse relatives. I don't know how familiar you are with the family Equidae, but close relatives of the horse are the rhinoceros and the tapir, 
plus extinct forms like titanotheres, hyracodons, um, calicotheres. A bunch of stuff has become extinct through time, of course. And not only the condylars are thought to be the ancestral form for the horses and their relatives, but also to the cattle. And in fact, a group called the artiodactyls and other groups of animals. The artiodactyls, including the cattle. So these, these were kind of a founding group that is the condylars, three different species, different genera, uh, to a lot of the things we have living today. Okay, again, getting back to hyracotherium. Uh, and I don't know, are you able to read that fairly well from the back? Okay, good. Okay, this is a picture taken in about 1852 of Sir Richard Owen. Now, he was uh, one of the founding fathers of paleontology after Cuvier, who came a little bit earlier. And he was a brilliant anatomist. In fact, he identified things sent up from uh, Australia and New Zealand. So people who wanted to know what fossils were commonly sent them to Sir Richard Owen, who would identify them. And he identified one from uh, New Zealand as a flightless bird, which is amazing considered when he did that and what material he had to work with. Now, he was a gifted anatomist, as indicated here, but he wasn't especially well-liked. Uh, in fact, he was kind of cantankerous from things I've read about him. You look at his face and you think, well, yeah, that's possible. <laughs> anyway, Hyracotherium is the beast that he named. It was, he was given some material, actually not that far from London, from some sediments known as the London clay. And so he recognized that it was something new to science. And so he named it Hyracotherium. And. Okay, he named it Hyracotherium because oddly, the thing that was closest to it was a thing called the Hyrax, which is from Africa and the Middle East. Thing's not very big. Maybe they got up to about, oh, what, 12, 15 pounds, something like that. But it's not all that much smaller. If you'll look, if I, well, I can't show that. Wait a minute, that worked that time. If you look at the bottom, I'm trying to use a pointer and I can't. Uh, the teeth on the lower left is part of the upper tooth row of hyrax. The one on the right is a sample that was sent to Sir Richard Owen to identify. And so he could see that the teeth were very, very similar. They were hyrax-like, and so he called it hyracotherium. And the name is stuck. It was scientifically and formally named. He gave it as a paper, I think, in the last one in 1839, but it was formally published in 1841. So that's when it was published for Hyracotherium. Uh, the teeth, if you look more closely, they're kind of like the Greek letter pi. And that's typical of not only the horse, but things like the taper and the rhinoceros indicating their relationship, part of the reasons. Okay, I don't know how many of you have heard of Cope and Marsh. I'd like to go into this because it's really an interesting story. These guys got in the headlines of newspapers in America for years. They were starting out as friends. This is back in probably the 1870s. And then became very bitter rivals and enemies of one another. And I could go into a lot of stories here that are very funny, but there's not time. Anyway. In the background, it's showing something I'll show later on, some of the species of horses of Equus. Well, the lower right, well, the two guys oh, I mentioned, Joseph Lighty. In fact, a book was written about him, The Last Man Who Knew Everything. And it's pretty interesting. I mean, he was, he was really a great scientist, and he did. He, he studied not only fossil horses, but bacteria. And, I mean, just a wide range of things that he studied, and he did a very good job. He named a lot of different horses, as a matter of fact. Well, then, uh, the ones that came along later after they began their rivalry, Lighty just got out of the business. He said, I'm going back to bacteria and 
little organisms like that because he didn't like what was going on. Anyway, so we've got uh, Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Charles Marsh that's showing that portly guy in the corner, but he was a great paleontologist, and he was sent material of a very primitive horse, and he uh, named it Eohippus. For the longest time, Eohippus... Can I get it here? Next? <laughs> Maybe I better just say next. Uh, a depiction of that is shown. This uh, Eocene horse, in fact, very early Eocene, maybe going back even into the latest Paleocene. Uh, and as I indicated, maybe I didn't indicate. Anyway, uh, it indicated about collecting some of these in Uyuna Basin, but um, with students from BYU. But these things have been found, the earliest ones in Wyoming and, surprisingly, Baja, California. So some of the oldest ones of this Eohippus, which for a long time was considered to be, in fact still is by some, uh, synonymous with Hyracotheria. So if you can think back to that other chart that I showed before, and I won't even try to go back to it, uh, you can look at this as being the ancestor then of our modern group of horses uh, starting out in North America. All right, it says, where horses first appeared on Earth, and I might give credit to Eric Scott, the one that did this, and a couple of other slides, including the last one. He's a fellow paleontologist who's worked a lot with horses and still does. Anyway, if you'll look at that, the horses first appear as indicated there in North America, and from there they spread to the rest of the world. Well, how do they get there? If they're in North America, I mean, that's a long swim to get over there to uh, Europe and to Britain, where Hyracotherium was found. So something was going on in the past. Most of you, at least many of you, probably know that the Earth is made up of a series of plates. And so there's this part of geology, plate tectonics. So all of the continents and all the ocean basins are resting on a few plates that are making up the surface of the Earth. And they move independently. And this has been well established now for years. And so through time, these have been moving around, and they still are. This can be measured by uh, lasers and satellites and other means to know even how fast they're moving. They're moving at some different rates, some of them moving about the, as fast as your fingernail grows. Not fast, but over millions of years, big distances are involved. So in the past, if you look at this, it'll take you a minute, I think, to focus on it. <clears throat> the star is showing an area where through that area from what's called North America and Greenland, which is now part of North America, and you get on into Europe, there was a time in which the continents were connected there in the Eocene. We know this because there are so many similar animals and plants that weren't similar before and later on as they changed through time. They weren't similar after. But during the Eocene, they were very similar, and that's why Hyracotherium and Eohippus have been confused and conceivably still are the same. But as I indicated, a lot feel that Eohippus is a little bit enough different. Anyway, so this is indicating how they may get around. Now, this is back in the Eocene. We're dealing back 50-some million years ago. And I know geologists throw out, you know, <laughs> years, millions of years like they're nothing. Uh, so, so don't lend money to a geologist. I mean, a thousand years is nothing, even a million. Uh, so as we go on in time now, we're getting up to the Pleistocene. Something's happening that involves the horses and many other animals, and still can't change it. I don't know why some work and some don't. Okay, if you look there in the uh, upper left-hand block, this is showing the continents as they were in the Pleistocene. Well, what happened in the ice scene? It's known as the ice age. Okay, where does that ice age, where did the ice come to form the glaciers? 
It comes from mainly the ocean's waters. And so as glaciers were forming on land, sea level was lowering. And at the time of this depiction shown here, it was lowered about 500 feet. So that's how much different. This allowed for a lot of different connections that don't exist now. And it's called Beringia. You probably have heard of the Bering Strait. And in fact, the names there, if you can read it, called Bering Strait, that narrow strip of water that separates Alaska from Siberia now. But back then, the continental shelf was connecting. In fact, it was a broader connection, as you can see, between Alaska and Siberia uh, than, the con than the, these countries are now. Anyway, so at this point in time, there is a lot of dispersal. You may say, okay, well, why, if you had glaciation, could these animals go back and forth? They were ice-free corridors, depending on the time. So animals that could live in this area, that is, they had a type of habitat that they could adjust to in Siberia and Alaska, easily went back and forth. And that's what the other depiction of these animals being restored with a horse being there in a foreground. So this is when the modern horse got into first Siberia and then from there into uh, Europe and, and Africa. Uh, at that same time, the bison came over, which was not a native of North America, and it came across this Beringia, this land uh, connection, into North America, as did the mammoths, which are elephants, and I'll point that out later. If you look carefully, you can see the bison, the mammoth, bear, and some other things that were dispersing back and forth. Then when uh, the glaciers melted, sea level rose, we have the Bering Strait, then you've got a separation now. Okay, then when horses then uh, got into the old world, they were uh, in a in time, in fact, I was greatly surprised to see this. As you can read, it says the archeological evidence indicates 3500 BC, that's a long time ago that horses were thought to have been domesticated. But they're useful animals. Probably they were used first for food, and then later somebody got the bright idea, hey, we could use these to do some work, and I won't have to do as much. Okay, again, the next one. Okay, Bowtie is thought to be one of the first places, but then almost simultaneously they've got evidence for domestication of horses uh, all over, as you can see by the stars and even more places than this. Okay, some of the evidence. Uh, if you look at the middle part, there's just a whole collection of bones and teeth of horses there, probably some other stuff mixed in. The upper left-hand corner, one of the evidences is, there's actually evidences for a bit in this horse's mouth. And so the wear patterns are very typical of a bit, and they've got that from more than just this one specimen that helps indicate domestication. They were actually riding them. And then the lower right-hand one, I don't know if you can make that out, but it's kind of a pot, uh, partially reassembled. DNA studies show that that held mare's milk, the milk of a female horse. And so all of this has led to the belief of a very early domestication of the horse, certainly in the old world. Okay, and there's a Mongolian. The Mongols are known as great horsemen. Uh, he's got a bridle there. If you look closely, it looks like he doesn't have a saddle. Okay, then we get on more toward modern times. And as, if you can read this, it should have been a different colored uh, type, I guess. But at any rate, uh, they were reintroduced. And Columbus' the second voyage in 1493 was when horses came back for the first time. Then shortly after that, Spaniards kept bringing them over, mainly on the eastern side because they had to go all the way around the Cape in South Africa 
Cape Horn to be able to get up to the West Coast. So it was a long time, really, and you need to keep this in mind, before horses actually got to the West from where they first were introduced to the East in the Americas. So, um, another chart yet. <clears throat> Again, showing a more conventional type of phylogeny of the horse. It shows the earlier ones down there, actually showing hierarchytherium there. I probably can't read it. But what's depicted in this one is that the early horses were mainly browsers feeding on leaves. But in uh, the Miocene, grasslands became established in, in the world and temperate areas. And horses that lived in that area began modifying to be able to feed on the ground, feed on the grasses. And so they developed a different tooth. The horse is interesting in that it shows a complete transition all the way from these early browsing forms into the grazing forms to Equus cabalis that we have today. Uh, I wish I had a pointer to show this one time I really need it. Uh, if you look at the top where it shows the modern horse there on top, Equus, and if you follow that down, that line, there's one if you jump to the left, and it's called Dinohippus. If you follow that out, you see the two of them overlap a little bit, that they seem to have coexisted for a little bit. And this is at about, oh, around five million, four and a half to five million years ago. Well, I've done a lot of study in Mexico in this area with this horse called Dinohippus. We've got one that we can't tell if it's Dinohippus or Equus. And so it's felt not only by us but other researchers that this was the ancestor, the genus ancestor of Equus. And it seems like this happened in Mexico, that is in North America. At least that's where we have the first evidence. And the next slide, if I can get it, shows some of us working. Uh, my friend and colleague has been for a number of years, Oscar Carranza, who's standing in the furthest by the open door. I'm leaning against the van there eating lunch. We're all eating lunch. And then uh, Oscar's uh, helper there needing, leaning over the fire is Gerardo. And then... Uh, the one sitting there is Bark Wallace, Dr. Bark Wallace, who's at BYU, and we worked a lot together down there. Now, he's not a paleontologist, but what he has done as a geologist is specialize somewhat in radioactive dating, radiometric dating. And so through fission track dating and potassium argon dating, he's helped in sending off to labs that we've gotten dating of this horse, like I said, that's intermediate between Dinohippus and the modern horse Equus. And this is Occidentalis, the, the western horse. In fact, Occidentalis means western. This is the one that's the primary one at Ranch La Brea that I want to get to. So that's just a depiction of what this wild horse was like before we get to Equus Cabalis. Okay, and I need to give credit at least to that diagram in the upper left, that map of my friend uh, Eric Scott. Now, if you look, and you probably can't read it, but all those yellow markings are areas in which Pleistocene horses have been found. That's in western North America, actually southern California. If you look at the very bottom, I don't know that you can read it and I can't point it out, but about the bottom, uh, not quite center, but the bottom one that's yellow is called Costo Pit, the same number that you see on top. Well, that was a new fossil site back when, and, and I was the one that helped develop that. I had a little bit of help with students. In fact, neighbors, some of the little kids would come around and want to help, and so they did. Anyway, so all these uh, down at the bottom, and I can't point out, Costo Pit is on there, but it doesn't show. 
That, that map at the bottom is actually from my book, which came from my doctoral dissertation, shown on the right. And most of those sites show horses. And in fact, Costo Pit, where I did much of my uh, dissertation work, my research for it, I identified 24 different horses there. I mean, same equus, uh, probably equus occidentalis species, but 24 individuals. So there's a lot of horses there. A lot of horses in Southern California. Okay, then getting back to Mexico, where I've been doing collecting recently, and uh, while a lot of different kinds of animals have been found, the most abundant one that we found at various sites has been the horse. And one inside, though, that one on the bottom left there, we found seven mammoth tusks there in that trench. Okay, then another place in Mexico that we worked a few years ago was uh, in Durango, state of Durango. What you see there is a horse jaw, but if you look closely, there are other bones there. In fact, it's like jack straws or interdigitation of a lot of different fossil bones. They collected in a stream, uh, at a point bar in a stream where the stream slowed down, bones and things that were carried down just settled out there, then got covered as the stream deposited more sand. Well, time went by and stream changed its course and then came back to this area and exposed it. And we just actually took and made plaster jackets. We'd trench around. I don't know if you know what I mean by a plaster jacket, but uh, you're familiar with that, with, you know, if you had a broken arm or broken leg or something. So we'd use the same kind of plaster, but we'd dig a trench all around a bunch of these bones and then put burlap down soaked in plaster and then as it dried, then we would dig it up and then bring it back to the museum. Okay, this from that site that you just saw, in fact, up in the upper left on the table there, uh, is one of the jaws of that same horse and the skull and a number of other bones. So those bones are all from the one horse that you saw on the uh, last slide, same individual. Other work in Mexico, the lower left shows the atlas or the first cervical or neck vertebrae of a horse. And again, we found a lot of different kinds of animals there in these badlands there in Mexico, but uh, mostly it's been horse, second would be mammoth or elephant. Just briefly, these are just some of the names that have been given. Most of these are actually Pleistocene, those is Pleistocene, Pleistocene. And that isn't even all of them. There have been over 50 names of species of Pleistocene horse. And I thought when I was working on my dissertation, I thought, that can't be right. And, and it's true. In fact, you have to look carefully on there, but you'll see several different names under one date. Those are just synonyms, horses that are thought to be just the same species. Then I thought, well, it probably in reality isn't more than about seven or eight valid species of Pleistocene horse. Now with DNA studies, that's been knocked down to maybe no more than three or four different species of horse. So working with that now. Again, a change. Oops. Okay, about the mammoth too. <clears throat> so the horse and the mammoth. Now recall from the book of the Jaredite record that it talks about elephants, and elephants and mammoths are the same. And in fact, uh, early paleontologists always called what's now called a mammoth an elephant, and even today a lot of them are called elephants. In fact, there's a closer relationship to the mammoth here in America and the Indian, Indian or Asian elephant than there is between the Asian and the African elephant, and yet we call them both elephants. Uh, I'll give you a minute to read this. Craig Downer is an interesting guy. I don't really know him personally. I'm pretty sure he's not LDS. Uh, 
but he's a, a wildlife biologist who's made it a life study for horses, and they're close really to the taper in South America, but mostly horses. And uh, while he's done mainly the modern horse, he's done into the, got into the history a little bit too. So uh, he's had degrees from accredited universities, including the University of California. And so I think the guy knows what he's talking about. Uh, now this comes, I don't know if you know Daniel Johnson, I don't know, maybe he's even here. But he wrote an article uh, in BYU Studies as well, and that's taken from that. So I've lifted it. And I agree with him. There may have been small pockets of horses that continue to survive here in North America and even South America. Okay, some other evidences then that the horse may have lingered on in North America beyond the Pleistocene of this 10,000 year barrier that had been set up. Okay, not only the Dakota Lakota peoples, but other Indian peoples or Native Americans also have a similar um, history in, in, in the verbal or the oral history of their, their groups that the horses were there even before they were reintroduced. And then uh, recovery of mammoth, again, elephant and horse DNA suggests that they lived on longer. So now getting into more scientific work on this, more and more paleontologists are agreeing that, yeah, this 10,000-year limit at the end of the Ice Age for some of these animals like the horse and the mammoth in North America may not be valid. They may truly have continued on longer. This diagram is from the same article that I showed in the last slide. If you look carefully, it shows uh, an outline of a mammoth, which is an elephant, and the horse there at about 7,500 years. Well, that's appreciably past the 10,000-year mark. Then this is done by Downer. In fact, these are a bunch of dates here. I don't have time for you to look at all of them. But some of them are even down to 600 years before the present for evidence for horses. Some of this was actually compiled, I think, by Stephen Jones, who was at BYU, that Craig Downer had corresponded with. Okay. Okay, and then another one that's kind of surprising. Uh, Carlsbad, California is indicated here. They found that skeleton of a horse, also most of a skeleton of an ass, the two of them close together there uh, in Carlsbad. And according to the researchers there, Mojado, uh, an archaeologist, he feels that uh, these animals existed here near Carlsbad a number of years, 50 years here, before they actually got into Western North America, the ones reintroduced by the Spanish. Okay, so talking about animals living on past the time they were thought to be extinct. The ginkgo tree here, in fact, there's some on the BYU campus and around Provo. The leaves of the ginkgo, and it's a deciduous tree that turns color in fall, as indicated here, but it shows in the bottom central fossil leaf of a ginkgo. The ginkgo tree was thought to be extinct many millions of years ago until they found them still living in remote areas of China, then since they've been reintroduced to America and other places. Even more startling, and you may have heard of this, is a coelacanth. The coelacanth of the fish that is thought to be a type of lungfish, really, that's thought to have been extinct over 65 million years. So think about that, 65 million years, they thought this thing didn't exist anymore. Then in 1938, they dredged one up off the Comoro Islands by Madagascar. Found out they're still living. Since then, they've gone down and taken video. I've seen video of these things swimming around. Then even later on, well, actually, it was a professor at UCLA, as I recall, who was in uh, Indonesia, and he saw one in a fish market there. And uh, 
lo and behold, they exist off the seas of Indonesia as well. Now, this isn't a little guppy-sized fish here. This thing could weigh up to 200 pounds. So we're talking about, you know, a substantial size. And you can see by comparing that it's very close to the fossil form, so they didn't change much over 65 million years plus. The okapi, which was known as a fossil before, is known that it was still living, found in the 1800s um, in the Congo area. Now, they don't have to still be living in an area, but a lot of times the range of fossil animals uh, went on for hundreds, thousands, even millions of years, as shown here, and found out they lived on far longer, maybe became extinct later. In fact, most things did. Uh, the last few minutes that I have here, I want to point this out that you probably can't read it. I better get it by the mic. Um, the bottom form is one of the areas that we collected in Mexico. We had a lot of mammoth. It had a date sent out uh, to the uh, University of Arizona AMS Carbon-14 lab. And uh, they gave a date there of 49, actually greater than 49,900 years. In other words, they couldn't date it any older than that. that. That individuals we had there were just simply older. But the thing that just surprised, even shocked me, is the top date of a horse based on a horse. Come on. Sorry. thought I had it turned on. Uh, and if you can read the date, it's 2,540 years. Uh, that's in Book of Mormon time. And I was just totally shocked. Anyhow, as uh, I thought about, well, we need to go down and do some more substantiating of this. And uh, Kirk Magleby of uh, Book of Mormon Central, and along with Matt Roper, I think they're both here. I know Matt is for sure. Uh, thought, well, let's go down there and look at it. And they helped uh, subsidize another trip for me to take down there. I'm still having troubles. Okay, there's Kirk standing to the left and Matt and also Daniel Smith who works for Book of Mormon Central and then some of the people that I'm working with down below. And this is where uh, I found a horse skull that dated, that gave it 2,540 years. <clears throat> we found a number of other horse bones and as serendipity would have it, when Kurt and Matt and Daniel were there, we found another horse skull in the same area where we're digging now that we excavated when they were there. Plus other teeth and some bones of some other animals as well. So sent that material off to get dated. And again, I just don't know if you can read it from where you sit, but I'll have to point it out. And this is where problems started arising. The top and the bottom dates are, one was I think 183 and 216 or something like that. I can already read it too. That was based on carbon-14 date in that area uh, that was run at the same time it had running done of the dating for the horses. And so there's such a wide disparity, something's got to be wrong. At first I thought, well, the carbon dates, the carbon fragment dates are probably accurate. The ones based on other material, probably not. But the more I checked into it, the more I'm not sure. So there are more dates that I'm having run now to be substantiated and decided to go to another university, University of Georgia in this case, to have one of the samples run there rather than having them all run the same place. So this is kind of up in the air now, but there's certainly the possibility shown here. But there's just, as you can see before, a lot of indication that horses probably did live on much longer. Don't have time to go into this, but the carbon-14 dating has to do with carbon-14 that forms in our atmosphere, <coughs> forms, it combines with oxygen, forms CO2 to get in by plants, 
animals eat plants, they take in this carbon-14 along with stable isotopes of carbon, which can be dated by comparing them or even by the, uh, well, I won't get into the details of the dating, but anyway, it's not enough time. So I just want to briefly mention about the elephants, again mentioned here in the Book of Ether, as shown there, mammoths and elephants are the same, same kind of animal. Don't see them in the Nephite record, but apparently they did actually become extinct between the time of the Jaredites and the Nephites. Ah, come on. Okay, this is showing the woolly mammoth. Most people think of the mammoth, the woolly mammoth, but actually the one mainly here and the ones we were finding in Mexico are the Colombian mammoth, which the other ones are the three. Uh, again, we get into the dating of some of this stuff. They found out that they lasted a lot longer. A lot of DNA as well as other kinds of studies in carbon-14, I'll hurry through this, show that these things were living at a carbon-14 date of 3,685 years, uh, that's about 1,600 and some years B.C., again, during Jaredite time. And scientists pretty much accept this, so they did exist. Now, while this is around Alaska and this area up there, the same thing could be happened. Isolated populations probably lived down further south. And this is just showing some ages here, again, showing the mammoth or elephant living <coughs> far past at 10,000 years. I helped reopen the Rancho La Brea asphalt pits in 1969. And again, one of the more common fossils here, even though it shows a mammoth here, are the horses. And I worked with a lot of the horses from Rancho La Brea. Now, the work that I'm doing now is being done mainly in Coahuila and uh, the city of Saltillo. And that's uh, their major museum, which is a huge museum. It's really a great modern museum that I've been working with. These are the people, these are the core people that I've been working with. And uh, the lady there in the middle is uh, Rosario Gomez. She's the head of paleontology for the state of Coahuila. So all of us work together. I'll be going down there again in September to do some more work. Now, in closing, one of the things I often ask, I know somebody's asked that in one of the questions, is how do you know where to look for fossils? Well, the next slide should explain that. Okay. <laughs> But, but basically, it's in areas like that, though, whether or not the rainbow's shining on it. Thank you. I'm just going to go out the door there, and I'll be at a table so I can answer ones I don't have time to answer here. I would like to thank Lena Rogers, who's here in the... Uh, audience. She helped put this uh, PowerPoint presentation together with me. So thank you, Lena. Stand up. Thank you. Okay. In the Rockies, the Lewis and Clark expedition came across a tribe of Indians that were expert riders of horses and had very large herds. As anyone looked, if this may have been a pocket or pre-Columbian horses, uh, what is going on now is I think with DNA studies, if they did exist here, like some of these Indian groups believe, uh, again, it would be the same species and they could interbreed. And I think some DNA studies are being done now to see if something can be done here to determine that. I don't know to give you an exact answer, though. What is your opinion of where the Book of Mormon took place? My opinion is, and I put it in that Science in the Book of Mormon, that I do think it's in Mesoamerica. There's so much evidence 
I know there's arguments for other places, and I'd be glad to go into why I think, which other people have done, uh, like some of the people here. So I would say my opinion is, along with uh, a lot of others, it's probably Mesoamerica. That's too big. Uh, <laughs> what are modern names for Kurlums and Kumums? Well, I mentioned that in my book because I, I, I definitely think that one or the other, the Kurlum or Kumum, uh, is probably uh, a type of mastodon or mammoth. Probably a mastodon because that's different than the mammoth because they did indicate elephants. A kumum, probably in my opinion, they could be either one, is one of the llamas, which are here we call camels, but some of those got to be about seven feet tall at the shoulder. Certainly capable of beasts of burdens like their smaller relatives, the llamas and the alpacas, and probably could easily be trained too if that's the case. Do you think the sad-faced horse of Mexico and Central America has always been there? And is this a remnant of ancient horses? You'll have to ask me when I get off the table because I'm not quite sure on that. What reason do, you, do mainstream geologists give for so-called rapid extinction of the horse in America? And that is a good question. I didn't have time to get into it, but there's such a thing as C3 and C4 grasses and vegetation. And some of the C3 grasses were being replaced by C4 grasses. And so in feeding, they were getting the bulk, but not the nutrition. So that would weaken them, and plus other animals too that were feeding on them. And that's thought to be one possibility. And once you get a population down where they don't have enough for you know, a lot of breeding, then they, they fall prey to you know, predators and a lot of things, d disease. Um, Okay, is that the time? Yeah. This is our gift. Well, thank you. you. I didn't expect it. Bookstore, and thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate it.